so we're at the Bitcoin beach and we're having a great time. You might even be able to hear some of the crowd outside. But I think we all got a really good chuckle out of this response from the Bitcoin magazine to the Federal Reserve threatening to sue them. Did you see this? It's pretty funny. Bitcoin magazine is selling some merchandise with the words Fed Now on it, which is a reference to the new Federal Reserve run real-time payments processing system that really seems to have been rolled out kind of in response to Bitcoin and private digital payments technology. And the Chicago Fed, one of their lawyers has sent a cease and desist letter to Bitcoin Magazine saying that Bitcoin Magazine doesn't have the permission to use this trademark and it could cause confusion and mislead readers into believing a connection exists between the publication and the central bank. And the lawyer for Bitcoin Magazine's response is just great, basically saying Bitcoin Magazine's consistent and vocal critique of centralized financial entities, including the Federal Reserve, makes any claims of consumer confusion concerning an endorsement or affiliation between the merchandise and the Federal Reserve rather far-fetched. The merch was pretty great. I kind of want one now. It's like the Streisand effect here because uh, they got and the Fed now shirts and uh, hoodies. It's obviously not official Federal Reserve merchandise. I mean, I don't know how much, how much uh, Federal Reserve swag you have, Dad. Um, so I know that could be confusing for the folks out there that buy a lot of Federal Reserve swag. But the fantastic thing that they did in their response letter was not only poke the bear about how of their fiscal policies have been destructive, but then they actually linked to the merchandise store in the letter back to the lawyer. I didn't notice that. That's great. That's some cojones on the Bitcoin Magazine, folks. It is so great. They say that uh, Federal Reserve recently learned that the Bitcoin Magazine is selling t-shirts, hats, and other wearables that have the FedNow name. And they are concerned about confusion. <laughs> and it's just so silly, right? Because Bitcoin Magazine says that in conclusion, we firmly stand by our right to engage in parody and critique and contribute to the broader discourse on the financial system and privacy. Should you wish to further discuss the principles of parody, transformative views, and broader implications for free speech, we remain open to a constructive dialogue. They, they write. <laughs> That's definitely a W for Bitcoin Magazine. But what exactly is FedNow? So as we mentioned, FedNow is a new real-time payments network launched by the Federal Reserve. It went live in July of this year and currently has around 140 financial institutions and 22 service providers signed up. This is a fraction of the more than 10,000 institutions that already have access to the other payments and settlement services of the U.S. Central Bank. But I believe the official comparison in terms of how well this is going is to RTP. The RTP network, which is owned by TCH, Clearinghouse, is another real-time payments network. I think it has a fairly similar structure to FedNow. Unlike credit cards or sort of consumer-facing payments, these are push payment networks, similar to Bitcoin, where if you have a participant's payment information, you can't pull money from their account. You can only push money to their account. And this is kind of an obvious mechanism for preventing fraud because fraud prevention in terms of credit cards and other payment networks is basically uh, impossible. It's security through obscurity. It's, it's hoping that fraudsters don't have your information so they can't initiate payments out of your account. All of these systems that have faster payment clearance, and the reason that credit cards sort of work the way they do is that because the settlement is so long, at least 28 days after the transaction, it means that there's time to sort of scrutinize every payment and run algorithms on them to figure out if they look like fraudulent payments or is this a high-risk customer, et cetera. And that's what makes credit cards you know, such a nightmare the moment you trigger a couple of flags and now you're sort of a risky customer and now credit cards suck for you. It's also why you can't buy a house with a credit card. But this kind of brings us to an interesting conversation about traditional finance and real-time payments technology. So what is the clearinghouse? You know, like the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is a corporation that is actually owned by some of the largest 
financial institutions in America, the Clearinghouse is another such organization, and they manage some monetary network services that, that has their clients as their customers their, or their owners as their customers. And one of these is RTP. And again, it's very similar to this FedNow service, except it's overtly a private network. I think it's only available to sort of a small subset of financial institutions. And so the idea of FedNow is that you're going to bring a real-time payments network, but you're going to make it more widely available, of course, not to consumers, but to private entities. And I think the interesting detail about RTP is that when you compare it to other payment technologies that are available via your bank, you've got ACH, same-day ACH, wire transfers, and then RTP. Wire transfers cost $25 to $50 per payment. They settle within minutes. They are like RTP push systems. So I can push money into your account from a wire transfer. And they're generally used for like international transfers. But the thing is, wire transfers that are sent internationally do not settle in minutes. They generally settle in five to seven days. ACH, automated clearinghouse, is something you might be more familiar with. And ACH sometimes can settle in one day. And it's also a pull and push networks. You can actually uh, pull money out of people's accounts with ACH, which was why I was always, uh, you know, kind of nervous setting up direct deposit with my employer because I think they can push and pull using direct deposit. It's a slightly scary relationship to have with the company in the United States. But what stands out to me is that ACH, if you don't need instant settlement, can get as low as 20 cents per payment. So that's relatively cheap. That's almost free. Non-instant is like 30 days. Two to three days, supposedly. Oh, okay. But I All think right. really, you know, within five is a safe margin. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's funny that five days feels like, oh, that's so fast. Yeah, and then the way that ACH saves money is that ACH is automated clearinghouse. It's literally a clearinghouse. It's an entity that aggregates a whole bunch of transactions and batches them together. And so the reason that it's cheaper is that they're actually grouping transactions from different banks together and kind of canceling them out. So if we are two banks and I owe Chris Bank $100, Chris, but Chris Bank owes me $50, then I end up only sending 50 through ACH. So it's kind of efficient in that sense. Okay, so why this detour into modern payment technology? Well, one thing that's interesting is RTP still costing 25 cents a transaction. It has a maximum transaction size of a, you know around a million dollars, I think. It's still more expensive than the Lightning Network. In fact, it might be more expensive than Bitcoin in certain situations. And it certainly has less security finality than Bitcoin. So it's just interesting to compare all of these legacy options to Bitcoin, to the new technology, and see that they're, they're still inferior, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bitcoin's not just an asset, but it's a network and uh, a functional network that does the security aspect. It, it is essentially the central bank built into the network, and it just handles all this. Right. And where these centralized networks win is scale. Because these are computer systems run by centralized entities that charge fees, they got big computers churning away at this, and these are just big SQL databases on the back end. And so, yeah, they can handle thousands of transactions a day, much more than the base Bitcoin blockchain. I think we have to recognize that decentralized scaling is still super hard. I like thinking about this, though, because I think it gives us a broader context to think about the problems that Bitcoin needs to solve and also maybe be a little honest about areas where distributed, decentralized isn't going to be as efficient, but those trade-offs are probably going to be worth it. I mean, it's still going to be faster than five days. It's still going to be faster than 30 days. Uh, And, you know, it's not that the commercial companies like MasterCard and whatnot haven't taken a look at this kind of stuff and tried to roll their own systems and solutions that are more modern. They just have a lot of trade-offs. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on November 4th, 2023 from Bitcoin Beach. And I'm here live with me. It's Chris. 
from El Zante, soon to be in San Salvador. Hi, we're actually here. We're in Bitcoin country. It's pretty great. Mostly just been buying food with Bitcoin. There's really not much else to buy here, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, that and the beach. Papooses and plantains. On today's show, we're going to discuss news that the Collider Lightning Derivatives Exchange is shutting down. What's going on there? What does it say about Lightning? Crypto VC and Bitcoin writer, activist, sometimes critic Nick Carter has put out a bounty on debunking the Wall Street Journal article about Bitcoin, crypto, and Hamas. That's pretty interesting. A lot of those bounties have been paid out. As SBF has been found guilty on all charges, there's really not too much to say there, but the Wall Street Journal has a really interesting profile on Do Kwan and all of the chaos he's caused in Serbia, even from behind bars. In economics, another U.S. regional bank has failed. It actually probably doesn't matter, but it brings to mind the issues with the U.S. regional banking system and their exposure to commercial real estate. In Bitcoin education, we have a new Bitcoin Optech, which covers a kind of broad discussion around Bitcoin scripting. And I think we can talk about different perspectives on Bitcoin scripting and how that sort of resulted in Bitcoin being what it is today versus, I think the best example is Ethereum, which has taken a very different path. And then we have some boosts. That's our show. Quite the show it is. I want to start with this Collider news. This is the story this week that I'm the most bummed about. I never used Collider, but I absolutely love the idea. It was a lightning exchange lightning native exchange and the coolest feature that they offered is that you didn't have to make deposits and have a wallet on their damn exchange like you do with all of the other ones and i thought this was a ginormous land shift in security and privacy and you know custody but um they did it all with the lightning network and it seems there just wasn't a large enough hardcore trader market that was willing to use the lightning network i suppose and actually in traditional finance custody of assets and trading are are separated. And this prevents a huge amount of fraud, probably 90% of fraud, because if the exchange that's trading also has access to your assets, they can do so many things. They can lend them out, out from under you, like what happened with FTX. They can lose them, like what happened with Mt. Gox. There's so much that can go wrong. And a qualified custodian is basically a dedicated entity that gets paid to protect assets. And obviously this raises costs for both the businesses and the consumers involved, but it's very different from from an exchange, a qualified custodian has a much lower attack surface. They don't have to handle deposits and withdrawals from thousands of customers. They handle probably hundreds of customers, maybe if they're a huge custodian. So that always you know, made sense in traditional finance. The cool thing about the Lightning Network is that because payments are relatively instant, you can just send money immediately into the exchange, do the trade, and then take money out. I think what was particularly interesting about Collider is they basically used Lightning and some sort of centralized derivative to create Lightning-based stablecoins. And so that's how they were a derivative exchange. You could kind of hold a Lightning-based stablecoin on their exchange or, or derivative. You know, it's a, it's a derivative asset. And those derivative assets are not they're not exactly a dollar. They're not exactly a euro. But in many situations, they'll behave in a similar way. And I think that's supposed to be good enough for traders. But it turns out there were not enough traders on Lightning. And I think managing liquidity was also very challenging for them. Yeah, I can imagine that probably would be. This was a pretty hardcore exchange. Like I checked it out because I love the idea of not having to have a wallet. Hey, if I wanted to buy some Bitcoin, I mean, I just buy it over the Lightning Network. Uh, when they first launched, they didn't have KYC and that was pretty sweet. And I really thought I'd take it pretty seriously. However, as I started to play around with it, it just was way over my head, right? I don't actually want to dick around and like lose money. I just wanted to stack sats. And this is easy for me to say, looking back at it, but if it had been more pleb friendly, 
something with a similar UI to like Albi. It's a little bit simpler where I could get in there, buy and sell really easily over Lightning because the core aspects, Lightning first, no wallet on their server. I like that a lot, right? I like the privacy aspects of that. I like the security aspects of that. I think that could have been great. But then I was so overwhelmed by the scope of what Collider was trying to offer. I'm like, well, I'm not a DJ that just wants to sit here and gamble all day. So this isn't for me. And I closed the tab and I never went back. And it wasn't for you because they didn't have KYC because they didn't have fiat payment rails. So if you're stacking sats by selling fiat for Bitcoin, it's not going to work out. It's for people who have Bitcoin and they want to go degen. I mean, and they're not necessarily degens. Maybe they're professional traders, which is a nice way of saying a professional degen. You know, it was for them. And I think it also can highlight some issues with Lightning Network scalability. Managing liquidity, managing Lightning channels at scale is expensive and they needed volume and there just wasn't the volume on the Lightning Network. And I think that makes sense for many reasons. One is it's been a bear market. And so interest is down. Also, Bitcoin volatility has not been what it was. And actually, Bitcoin volatility drives traders to Bitcoin because the volatility is an opportunity for trading. I wonder if they had been able to survive for a few more months. We're only five months away from the halvening. So if they could have survived another eight months, maybe they would have caught the next bull upswing in the next interest in degen trading activity. Who knows? Yeah, I could see that. I don't remember exactly when they launched, but I, I want to say it was towards the end of the last bull run. So if you know they didn't quite get the cycle last time. And you're right, there is a lot of liquidity to manage there. All of that feels temporary. I mean, a, a company at the scale that they're working at, you know, with a with a few hundred customers or more, you're probably using liquidity providers. You're probably using automated systems to balance out those channels and manage that. You probably don't have somebody that's just sitting there circularly rebalancing channels manually every day or something like that. And that's terrifying when you think about it. An automatic rebalancing tool that's generating transaction fees and things and is vulnerable to bugs and errors. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah, that does sound a bit messy. Now this next story, even though it's my special friend, Elizabeth Warren, at the heart of it, you've been following the story of Oh my God. The Wall Street Journal, Hamas, crypto, Warren's letter. Throw her in reverse for a second, Dad, and let's go back about a year. If you go back about a year, maybe year and a half, what you will discover is Elizabeth frickin' Warren is at the center of every single tragedy. Anytime somebody dies, anytime somebody gets bombed, anytime somebody burns alive, anytime somebody gets shot in the head, Elizabeth Warren is there to scream about crypto and how crypto funded that illegal action. And she and a band of about 11 other Congress critters jumped enthusiastically all over a Wall Street Journal report that came out and implied that a large amount of money was funding Hamas and Hamas-linked wallets. However, they were able to determine that. Time went on and Bitcoiners started to think, geez, this sounds a little weird. This doesn't sound quite right. And digging was done. There's a couple of different numbers have been kicked around in the total amount of crypto that was probably sent to potentially Hamas-linked wallets. You know, I've heard anywhere from a million dollars to four million dollars. But when you break that down into how much of it was Bitcoin, it's like $200,000. The fact of the matter is, is that the traditional finance rails and cash and all of that are billions and billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars, right? So we're we're talking about tens and tens of billions of dollars versus $200,000 in Bitcoin. And she, she went on the warpath. There's videos you can go find online of her questioning witnesses and and she really focused in on self or what did she call them non-hosted wallets or something i forget her terminology but basically self-hosted wallets or something she's honed in on self-custody as the new bad guy in her crypto warpath you see the problem is that these came from people that had their own wallet 
They weren't even wallets on exchanges. They could just send it right from their computer to, to, to the evil terrorists. Having cash in your wallet sounds very dangerous. What if you have bad thoughts? If you go watch the videos of her questioning witnesses, um, it's pretty consistent. The witnesses are like, yeah, I mean, pocket change might have been sent, but Senator, we have a way, way, way bigger problem over here. And then she just goes right back to it. Like, <laughs> just doesn't even just right over Warren's head. I mean, there just seems to be something very structurally wrong with politics in the United States because Warren. in many ways, Warren seemed to get a boost from popular backlash against traditional finance during the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah. And I think that one of the issues was that that crisis was not very well understood by anyone. If you ask most Americans what went wrong, they'll say that banks went crazy and lent money to a lot of people that they shouldn't have lent money to. And that was the root problem. And honestly, I don't think it was. I mean, I think that the problem was there was an international euro, euro dollar money crisis and the visible symptoms were the failure of the uh, Greek economy uh, due to their uh, over indebtedness, the failure of Northern European banks that had invested in Southern Europe, including uh, Greece, Italy, and Spain, and the U.S. mortgage sector and these uh, financial intermediaries like Lehman that were providing exotic derivatives that acted as a form of insurance that allowed other derivatives to be used in a very money-like way. But that doesn't really fit on a placard, so no one's really talked about this or been too interested in finding the solution. So I think you know, since then, Warren has been trying to find a bad guy, and she went after big banks, and it just didn't really work because those are the same entities that received bailouts need to keep receiving bailouts and government guarantees and they you know by definition are you know, kind of well moneyed and it turned out she sort of needed that money to stay in office and now crypto is her new boogeyman she jumped in on the uh, sentencing of sbf which we'll touch on but she said that the hurt and pain for crypto isn't over quote the parade of cases to follow poses a much more existential threat than the ftx verdict they plan to keep on going she's on the war path here um and this is from this is an article from politico this morning it says meanwhile senator elizabeth warren is leading other lawmakers and pushing legislation to crack down on what they say is the industry's money laundering machine well the democrats would know wouldn't they you know, I just watched a video yesterday when uh, SBF was everybody's buddy and he was at uh, a Senate hearing on the other side. And uh, when he's leaving the room, Maxine Waters leans over and blows a kiss at him. See you soon, honey. Love you. Mwah, and blows a kiss at him. Well, be because his mother had a relationship with Maxine Waters, right? Well, and, she, and also Waters is one of the biggest beneficiaries of his political donations. Okay, well. I mean, I'm just saying Waters and Warren are on the same team. If Warren wants to crack down on some of this crap, it looks like you could just look in your own house. You don't have to go far. If someone donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to this podcast, I think we would be favorably <laughs> inclined to them. I know. It's just, you see, Warren wraps herself in the flag of a progressive protectionist and that she's fighting for the people, but she's become a puppet of the bankster. She's the power player that moves people in and out of government between bank jobs and government jobs. That's what Warren does now. You hear about that revolving door? Warren's the one that's at the door. She's the doorman. That's Senator Warren. Meanwhile, Waters and 50 other Democrats, and we don't know how many Republicans, all took millions of dollars from Sam Bankman-Fried. And now she's out there on the warpath claiming she's going to crack down on this um, money laundering machine. The money laundering machine is right there with her colleagues, and she's probably part of it. The whole thing is so, so hypocritical. So to return to Nick Carter and his bounties, Nick's issue with the Wall Street Journal article is that it has a very incendiary title. The implication is that crypto and Bitcoin funded 
Hamas's terrorist attack in Israel that started this latest war in the Gaza Strip. And then later in their article, they kind of couch it by saying, you know, up to $900 million in crypto. And it's been now changed to $130 million uh, somewhere in this uh, Warren letter. But the data came from Elliptic. It was first, you know, for the Wall Street Journal claims and then the Warren letter claims were first debunked by Chainalysis. And then Elliptic said, hey, actually, we're really uncomfortable with how you're using our data. You're interpreting it incorrectly. And now Nick Carter is who actually, I think he was an investor in Collider. So his company, Castle Island Ventures, was an investor in Collider. Nick has raised money, which was originally going to be, I think, around $15,000, but now it's up to 50 k because people have donated to this uh, funding effort. And if you do analysis, do your own chain analysis, take the elliptic data and sort of can, can pin down more details about how much money Hamas actually raised in crypto, you can get a bounty. And the article we've linked is a Medium post by Nick Carter that is really getting into the nitty gritty of what money can actually be, you know, with confidence confirmed to have gone to Hamas. And the numbers frankly appear to be pretty insignificant. And obviously this is a, you know, I mean, it feels a little silly to be engaged in this sort of pedantic argument, especially when a tragedy is unfolding on the Gaza Strip and in Israel. But Warren seems to be operating under the maxim of let no tragedy go to waste. So unfortunately, this debunking is important. It won't change people's knee-jerk reactions because the moment anyone reads the Wall Street Journal headline and maybe skims the first two paragraphs of the article, they're going to come to the conclusion that this crypto thing is really dangerous and needs to be reined in, and they're probably never going to change their mind. But debunks have to be put out there to set the record straight, or else this will just be one of those things in congressional testimony that just keeps on getting referenced over and over and over again. When Warren was approached about this, because, you know, there's two weeks of people debunking and getting closer and closer to the truth. Because it turns out, like, not only was it pennies that was sent, but Binance and Tether also froze some of the funds. So what was sent wasn't even received uh, by the wallets in a lot of cases. <laughs> so, of course, eventually this comes up. It works its way up to Warren. And uh, Warren says, quote, it's not about one report. Although uh, I do note that her letter only cited a single report. So what's the other report, Liz? <laughs> you know? <laughs> But on the subject of the Wall Street Journal, we have to be fair and balanced. And I have to say that their profile of Do Kwan is masterful. I warn you, if you read it, you're going to both think, wow, this Do Kwan, what an asshole. At the same time, you're going to maybe view him as more of a human. So read it at your own peril. If you want to just completely write him off, throw the book at him, F this guy, don't, you know, you don't, don't want to look at this, but it is fascinating. And some details that are becoming clear is that Doquan is not going to go to jail for creating Terra Luna. Creating a Ponzanomic, not stable coin, that is not illegal. And I am glad that is not illegal. What's illegal is all the lying he did around it. All of the steady lads deploying more capital, all of the claims that Terra USD was actually being used for payments. I mean, a big value proposition of his company that attracted investors and attracted people to both you know, put money into his company and also into these protocols is that he claimed that there was a real world use case for his stable coin. Because if there wasn't a real world use case, this thing looked a lot like kind of a Ponzi scheme. And it turned out there wasn't, and it was kind of a Ponzi scheme. But 
there is one detail that makes you go, huh, okay. Um, and I don't know if we knew this. In the back of my mind, I think we almost did, but it turns out that Do Kwan named his daughter Luna, right? So that kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Ouch, ouch. And he had such a cringe tweet, like naming my second most wonderful creation after my first most wonderful creation. And it's like, oh my God, Do. Oh boy. Oh my God, Do. Hopefully your kid doesn't see that tweet in about 20 years. <laughs> and he was just so delusional. Remember when he was on the run and giving interviews and people would be like, so where are you? And he's like, well, I'm not at liberty to say. And they're like, there's an Interpol red notice out for you. You're on the run. He'd be like, I'm not on the run. I'm not running. Look, I'm sitting down. <laughs> right. It's funny too that, you know, uh, both Do Kwan and SBF kind of went on this uh, I've just been busted tour where they tried to like play it off as like no big deal. And Martin Shrikelli, the former hedge fund manager who went to jail on securities fraud charges, showed up in both of these live stream tours. As a great quote, Shrikelli tells Joe, jail's not that bad. It sucks, but it's not the worst thing ever. Good to know, Quan replied. <laughs> Yeah, though maybe he won't have to worry about it. Although he definitely lied. He definitely misled quote unquote investors as they are. But I guess, yeah, I guess that's not breaking the law. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the fraud would be. It seems like the lying. Well, he also was caught with fake passports. Mm. He appears to have bribed a Montenegro politician who is now their prime minister. Nice. Good pick. Well, he knows how to pick the winner. And he wrote a letter from jail, which kind of outlined this, that then created a real ruckus in that country. So. Oh. The thing about Do Kwan is that he seems to cause chaos wherever he goes. Yeah, I know people like that. Like, they're just like chaos magnets. I guess when you just YOLO everything, I suppose that's what happens. It's funny how this is still a story still going on after all this time. You know, like we're still talking about Do Kwan and Terra Luna. See, you said YOLO, and I thought that was, and you know what else? Regional banking. Who oh. knew? <laughs> <laughs> but... Terra Luna was really interesting because it was actually the beginning of so much of the crisis yep, yep. that kind of dominated the bull market, including because Terra Luna led to Three Arrows Capital failing, which also led to Genesis and BlockFi and these entities failing, which then led to FTX failing. And so it was it was this related house of cards. And in many ways, Do Kwan was the instigator. So I guess in my estimation, he's kind of a hero now. Yeah, in a way, it kind of makes up for some of it. I suppose because we didn't lose money in the situation. It's a little easier to forgive. But it was sort of um, that that piece that just sort of kicked off a whole series of events. I guess I do. I mean, if it took Luna blowing up to take out FTX and SBF, probably worth it. Well, now I feel bad because we should have written a letter to the judge. Well, we still can in time for yeah. Do Kwan's sentencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, uh, we'll definitely do that. We'll get okay. right on that. Right put out a tweet that might show up in evidence. <laughs> and as we mentioned before, the fifth U.S. regional bank to fail in 2023 is Citizens Bank of Iowa. Damn, that's where I had all my money. That reveals something because this bank did not have a lot of money, only $66 million in assets and $59 million in deposits. I think they only had two branches. So this was a very small bank. I don't think its failure is in any way systemic or particularly worrying. It was taken over by Iowa Trust and Savings over the weekend, and so I think customers won't have any interruption in payment services. Oh, good, good. But why did it go bankrupt? Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, you're saying it's not a big deal, but like, I feel like we don't hear about banks collapsing every day. So like, that still feels like, even though it's not an important bank, it's still a bit of a signal. Well, I think that banks collapsing, especially small banks, is how a healthy banking system operates because banks have a fundamental mismatch between their assets and liabilities. Their main source of liabilities is deposits. 
and their main assets are long-term loans. So that just means that structurally banks are always vulnerable to bank runs and you need the FDIC and other entities to sort of be there to say, hey, listen, don't worry about all the red flags. We've got your covered. No need to pull your money out and create the self-fulfilling prophecy. But there are no details about this yet that I could find. But what's probably going on is they had some exposure to some bad real estate debt because if their total assets are under $100 million, you just need you know one or two real estate projects you've invested in to be underwater in this current environment and you're probably bankrupt. Yeah, I was just listening uh, to a report last night about uh, San Francisco and there is a really famous building in San Francisco that's up for sale right now. It's going for about 70 cents on the dollar for what the loan value is. So at some point, somebody's going to have to take a haircut, either the bank or somebody, right? And what the rumor is, is that the San Francisco commercial real estate guys, what they're doing is they're putting their buildings up on the market for sale and seeing that they're getting, you know, 70 cents to the dollar. You know, uh, the building when they bought it was $1,000 a square foot. And now it's maybe they're getting maybe $200 a square foot. And so the reason they're putting it up for sale is simply just to go through the performative action of getting a market evaluation of the building's worth. And then they're going back to the bank and saying, you got to restructure our commercial loan because look, this is, we can only get 40 cents on the dollar, 70 cents on the dollar. We got to redo this loan or else you're going to take a big loss. And they're not actually looking to sell the commercial real estate. They're just looking to basically do hard negotiation with the bank. And that's completely reasonable because most real estate loans are, I think, 10 year adjustable rate. So they're, I think they're, they're quite volatile and there is an expectation that they're going to be refinanced. And the longer that rates remain high due to Fed policy attempting to control inflation, which, you know, explain to me how goods and real estate inflation is exactly controlled by higher interest rates on government debt. And I'd be very enlightened to understand that. But higher for longer means you're going to get more projects that need refinancing at higher rates, and they need to go through this process of doing markdowns. And so this is kind of a organic deleveraging event, or it would be if it doesn't go too far. And if it goes too far, then it becomes a financial crisis and bank panic. And then the Fed will step in, slash interest rates, buy up bad debt off of financial companies' balance sheets and start another financial bubble, restart the financial bubble, maybe. Hmm. Boy, just it makes it makes the idea of using real estate as a store of value sound like a real pain in the butt in these types of markets, right? Like with Bitcoin, I just stack and hold those sats. But with with real estate or land you know, when the market turns like this, you got to go through these games. Yeah, and you have to hold it longer, frankly, I think, because they're just high transaction fees, buying and selling a home. I mean, I don't know if any listener has moved recently. You know, moving fees are up a lot too, because energy prices are higher, labor is higher. If you need help packing up your stuff or moving your couch, you know, that's going to cost you. And there are, yeah, there's taxes every time you process a real estate transaction and broker fees. Well, how about jupiterbroadcasting.com, my podcast network? We're down here this week and uh, dad and I are doing the, the dad pod right now, but Tomorrow I'll be doing Linux Unplugged. So if you want to see how that goes, <laughs> could be a train wreck. Check out Linux Unplugged 535 next week. But what I will give a mention to, my buddy Alex, he almost lost everything. And this guy, he's got copies of copies of copies, right? I mean, I'm talking like he's got copies in the UK. How did that happen? It was a series of unfortunate events. It was at a cascade. Yeah. It was like a corrupted image being pushed to back up or like, it's, give us a hint. I wish, you know. It's a good story about when you do decide to go sovereign and self-host, there are sometimes costs when life gets really busy, like he just got a new job and he's been traveling a ton and things just started to slip. And then it just, it created a cascade effect, essentially. Um, we also chat with uh, the blokes from 45 Home Lab who are building a new massive home, like for folks that want a Home Lab server, that's a beast. It's essentially enterprise grade, but built for the Home Lab. We had them on the show too. So that's that's self-hosted 109 and uh, a lot more over jupiterbroadcasting.com. Looking forward to 
checking that out. Now, how about a little Bitcoin education? Bitcoin Optech 275 is mainly focused on a continued discussion around scripting change on the Bitcoin dev list. And I think that this falls into two broad categories. One is covenants research, and another is a proposal called OpCat. CAT stands for catenate, and OpCat is an opcode that would allow you to take two bits of data from the Bitcoin stack, catenate them, so put them together, and then put them back on the stack. It's a very low-level operation, but this is a way to add a very low-level functionality that allows the construction of more. This is a way to add a very low-level functionality that allows the construction of more complex script behavior. And it relates, I think, to the covenants research, because in the discussion of how to do covenants-based vaults, for re- uh, just for context, a vault is a type of Bitcoin address that theoretically gives you a cool-off period before you can move the funds. So it would be a solution for ultra-cold storage where even if an attacker can steal the keys to the vault and tries to drain it, they're restricted in how much they can move and how fast they can move it. And it gives you time to check the transaction and issue a revocation transaction that then diverts the funds to a, a different wallet that hopefully you control. And it makes it harder to steal your funds because now an attack needs to steal, get access to the vault, also get access to your sort of backup system. And even if they have all of that, they can only empty the vault slowly and over a prescribed period of time. And so, you know, potentially this gives you time to do something, maybe, who knows. So what's the question? Because it sounds, that sounds really good. Question is, how do we want to build Bitcoin script generally? Do we want more complex computation on the blockchain that nodes are validating, nodes are doing computation? Over time, we need bigger computers computers to do this computation, but this gives us more functionality and more functionality at the base layer theoretically gives us more scaling on higher level layers. I mean, it sounds good, but Ethereum kind of took that path and now Ethereum you know, lives out of data centers. So that seems like kind of a trade-off. Do we go that far? Who knows? But that's, that's one way to do it. The other way I think is more similar to proposals like BitVM, like RGB, where you have client-side validation. You put something on train, like a proof, you do the computation off-chain, and then you can reveal the results of your computation if you need to, to sort of enforce something on-chain. And the advantage there is that you're just putting some arbitrary data on the blockchain. Other nodes don't care, they don't have to have more RAM or more compute to check it. And then if you need to do something, enforce a contract, you can reveal something on-chain. The downside is this probably means that if you do need to reveal information, it's more expensive for the, the client to reveal that information. But it means that the person who's using that service is paying for it, as opposed to distributing the cost to every node on the network. This is kind of the Noster approach, right? Where the Noster idea is that the Noster feed is a fire hose of information. And then if I want to block dad, I do that client side. You know, if I want special features, I do that client side. And that is really nice because then you don't have a central hand that is tweaking things um, and hiding what you see and don't see. But, and I wonder if this would be the same issue here, dad. Um, you also get slightly different implementations at the client level, right? Where that's the disadvantage, I think. The advantage of it being centralized yeah, you know, something that's like done at the node level is that it would be consistent across all Bitcoin applications, all Bitcoin uses. It would be a very consistent implementation. Obviously, there's I'm just steel manning here because obviously I think client side's a better way to go. But 
I think we should be upfront that there might be a cost of implementation differences depending on which client you're using. So you'd have the conversation, oh, are you using Mutiny Wallet? Yeah, you got to be using Zeus Wallet for that. Oh, you're using Zeus Wallet? Yeah, you might want to try out this wallet because Zeus hasn't updated yet to support this or that, right? Like you could, you initially at least, until it's really sorted out, you could run into those kinds of problems. Absolutely. I think that the Bitcoin approach, the client-side approach is probably much more complicated with a worse user experience because if we think broadly about the philosophical differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think Ethereum prioritized experience over technology in many ways. Even though Ethereum kind of markets itself as the technological platform, there's a lot of shortcuts there. There's a lot of things that look like JavaScript on Ethereum. And that was a conscious decision to make a protocol that was accessible to the greatest number of developers, even if it meant that the language of the protocol was sort of inherently unsafe. I mean, why isn't there multi-sig on Ethereum? Why? Because it's unsafe. You know, it, it does. It's not a safe thing to do. There are sort of some relatively battle-tested implementations of things that are like multi-sig on Ethereum. But it took a very long time to build that basic functionality, and they were building decentralized finance and stuff like that before they were building this, you know, basic kind of safe, reliable functionality. It's kind of a more move fast, break things, VC money approach. And hey, look, that's cool if it makes you rich. But if you're trying to rely on this for an alternative to a traditional financial system that is not working for you, I think you're going to have a bad time. I think, too, we are kind of in this golden era of Bitcoin adoption where a lot of the people that are all in are Bitcoiners. They're not average folks. They're Bitcoiners. And I think the Bitcoiner breed is okay with a slightly less comfortable front-end user interface if it means a more secure, more robust, more distributed network in the long run. I think the current crop of Bitcoiners would probably happily make that trade. And so we kind of, we have to make these decisions now while we can before the nor- the normies come in and, you know, they have a seat at the table and we start designing things more specifically for them, which will inevitably happen. But right now it's the Bitcoiners in the room. So let's build it the way the Bitcoiners are willing to live with it and let's make it the best way possible. And I think that's going to be something on the client side. I feel like you're having an early Linux flashback because this is so Linux, right? It's also very Android. I was thinking when you were talking, Google made the decision to use Java as the basis of Android apps. Well, Java's not great on mobile, especially 10 years ago. It was horrible. I mean, they had to re-architecture the execution backend three times in Android just to give it any kind of usable performance. The battery life sucked. The file size was huge. Java was the worst at, at, at mobile applications on these tiny, tiny, crappy processors, right? But Google made that decision because at the time, this is a long time ago, the world was full of Java developers and they knew they needed to compete with Apple right away. And they needed to get on the ground running as fast as possible. And so they made the compromise to use Java in a mobile setting on these tiny underpowered Android phones with puny batteries. They knew it'd be a bad user experience, but they knew they could capture as many developers as possible and catch up to Apple as fast as possible. And Android as a platform still lives with those decisions. One of the reasons iOS has more performance and better battery life and all that crap besides the OS architecture is the apps are built natively in a native language for the platform. They're not Java applications, right? They're Swift applications. They're Objective-C applications. They're actually compiled and run. It's a better decision. It's the decision you would make if you were taking your time and building it right. But if you're trying to just catch up and compete and dump on the market as fast as possible, you do something stupid like choose Java. Oh, my mind is blown because in that analogy, Bitcoin is iOS and Ethereum is is, uh, Android Android running Java. Wow. Okay. (laughs) 
it's kind of funny how we get there, right? I mean, because there's obviously a lot of differences. <laughs> I mean, Apple's not going to be the biggest uh, Bitcoin evangelist anytime soon, but uh, I think you get the implication. You know, people, they should write us. They should get in touch. They should reach out at Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com, or you could try Weapon X Bitcoin Dad Pod. You could also join our Matrix channel going every single day, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix for that. Or you could send us a boost. And our baller boost this week comes from Adevries17, not the the Dutch central bank-sponsored economist, as we've heard several times, with the message, have fun in El Salvador. We are doing that right now. Assuming my son doesn't kill himself in the ocean. The ocean at Bitcoin Beach is deadly. No joke. It's no joke. Great for surfing, but... I think we've had two near misses already. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that is really a dangerous ocean. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Freaking kids. Adversaries, thank you for the baller boost of 15,000 sats. Um, it's not a huge boost, but we really, really appreciate it. And it does make you our baller this week. Halleck came in at 10,000 sats uh, with no message, but just wanted to send us a little support. And Neural P sent in almost 6,000 sats, again, with no message. And thank you very much for the support. Now, Mr. Rusty Shackleford came in with 2,000 sats. Hi, Dad and Chris. I've gotten to the point where I want to run a lightning node. Where would I find others to open channels with? Do I just ask around on Lemmy and Mastodon? Or is there like a list? compiled somewhere. Thanks. Good question and no good answer. I think that you ideally open channels with entities where you would have back and forth traffic. It might make sense to open a channel with a hub node like, I don't know, Ellen Big or... Yeah, I was going to say Ellen Big. Yeah. Yeah, the idea with like Ellen Big, right, is you go there, you throw a few sats at them and they'll open up an inbound channel to you. And you can rebalance those channels too, but then you actually get some inbound liquidity. And so that's what I did for my first one is I just, I did like Ellen Big or something. What dad is saying though, I I, I think is what I've is what I've internalized, you know, um, two years into running the lightning node. And, and that is you really want to think about it from a standpoint of who are you transacting with? And maybe you're not transacting with anyone in particular. And so you can just do some general big channels. For me, it was, oh, well, I should open up a channel to the podcast index. I should open up a channel to Fountain and Albi, right? Because these are where the boosters are coming from. And it just, you kind of start saying, thinking, who am I doing trades with or whatever you want to call it, sending sats with, and then see if you can open up channels to them. Also, our matrix chat room, you could always pop in the Bitcoin matrix chat room and see if anybody in there wants to open up a, you know, probably it wouldn't be a huge channel, but they'd open up a channel to you, I bet. Yeah, the Bitcoin dad can open up a channel to you and you can experience firsthand the instability of a node running at home via Tor. <laughs> Thanks so much for the boost. John Bayo boosts in with a row of ducks. Is this truly the end of the bear market? I'm glad I experienced my first bear market with you guys. I've been listening since the uh, Jameson Lop interview. Very high signal and good balance of macro tech and privacy made accessible to a simpleton like me. Looking forward to what's ahead. Thanks so much for the boost, John Bayo. And the secret is if you're a simpleton, you can talk to simpleton. That's the, <laughs> that's my strategy. I don't buy that it's the end of the bear market. Maybe it's, you know, this has been a very, very long one. And maybe I've just settled in and gotten used to it. But um, I think what we're seeing is some just back in market machinations as things as the end of the year approaches and folks are trying to tax harvest and whatnot and i suspect what we're really seeing is just the upside of people that are tax harvesting are also buying and selling and you just have a lot more movement i mean i'd love to say that the bull's back baby because it feels good to be a bitcoiner during the bull market but i look around and i think how can bitcoin absorb a bunch of money if money is pouring out of the system to begin with i don't i don't know i i don't know dad do you think i'm wrong do you think where is it coming from yeah, where's the that money coming from? That is a good question. From? That's my question. Where's that money going? And it needs to be a lot. And I know these ETFs are coming, but I'm actually, and I haven't vocalized this, but I'm actually an ETF skeptic. The 
two biggest data points for me right now that seem to suggest that we're not going to see a massive long-term effect from the ETF is that Canada already has one. They already have a spot ETF. It doesn't make a difference. Nothing's changed. And MicroStrategy is, MicroStrategy stock is essentially, quote unquote, an ETF, right? You're buying MicroStrategy stock for exposure to their massive Bitcoin pile. And if people wanted to ape in on a quasi-Bitcoin ETF before the ETF was ready, they would have been buying MicroStrategy stock like crazy. And now the MicroStrategy stock isn't doing horrible, but it isn't popping off like everybody thinks a BlackRock ETF is going to pop off. I think those are good points to raise. And I honestly couldn't say if that's the case. I guess one aspect to MicroStrategy is that I think it's always been kind of a speculative company. After the 2001.com crash, I think MicroStrategy stock was trading at like 12 cents. So it's come back from that, but it's highly associated with Sailor. And I think it's hard for a investment advisor to say, you know, this Bitcoin thing might actually have some legs. And if we want to build something into your portfolio that has kind of a gold-like savings long-term element, let's buy some MicroStrategy stock. I think that might be a hard conversation. So perhaps yeah, maybe just the asset directly opens up Bitcoin to this huge corporate retirement financial advisor market that might be a large source of sort of automatic buying as people auto-contribute to their retirement portfolios and 401k accounts. Yeah, that's where an ETF will really make a difference, right? You know, um, I'm starting to feel a little less so sure about about my position, though, because I just decided to look up MicroStrategy stock. (laughs) It's doing great. It's at $435.95, and it's up 63.82% in the last year in a bear market. That's kind of the the Bitcoin growth in half, right? Bitcoin's up uh, 100 or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You know what? I don't know. I think it's too early. We just really can't call it yet. The only way we're going to know the bear market's over is with time. And also, always be ready for a 25 to 50% price cut, because that's Bitcoin. (laughs) Oppie1984 boosted in 4,000 sats with the message, I think losing some Bitcoin is a rite of passage in the world of Bitcoin. Well, Opie, it certainly has been. Boy, I have made my rite of passage a few times, and I almost made it again this last weekend. So I was prepping for the trip down here to El Salvador, and I decided I wanted to get all of the like, update notifications off my phone, get all my apps updated, because I didn't want to update anything while I was down here. So I do the right thing and uh, just YOLO in doing the updates and tap the old, okay, go ahead and reinstall, restart and install and do your optimization, because there's like some notification about Android needs to finish installing and optimizing your app. Tap here to reboot. Okay, I don't even really recall ever seeing that, but I'll tap here to reboot. And when I rebooted, I got an error message that there was no operating system installed. And I had just... Not even kidding. Not even kidding. 45 minutes before that, I had just loaded a million sats onto that. So that's some of my spending sats for down here. Ouch. Yeah. So I did the right thing again and just yellowed into hard, hard reset, <laughs> hard resetting. I just a lot of yellow and on my way out of here recently. It's just like, we got to go. There's a lot to do. We're only going to do this once. Let's just do it and see what happens. I saw that yellow tattoo you have when yeah. you went to the beach. I, well, I just figured it's yellow lifestyle now. It's the yellow Bitcoin lifestyle. I, I actually didn't really do anything all that sophisticated to get it back. I believe I rebooted it eight times. And then on the eighth reboot, it just booted. <laughs> Lucky eights. Lucky <laughs> I eights. rebooted it once since then and it came back once. Torped boosts in with 11,000 and 11 sats. 
I'm thinking about buying a used Antminer R4 to use it as a home Bitcoin miner, even though all of the metrics are telling me I'll lose money every day. The experiment will run for a few months, and then I'll boost in with the results, and hopefully I'll either break even or I'll make meager profits. Well, that's exciting. Is the Antminer R4 one of those USB-powered Antminers that you would plug into your gaming computer or something like that? Oh, so yeah, uh, I think so, although I'll look it up because I know I know which one you're talking about. It kind of looks like a, like a little thumbstick, right? I'm not sure if it's that one. You know, it's not going to make you money, man. I'm sorry. Every time I do this math, I always end up, oh no, it's a bigger one. It is a bigger one. Every time I do this math, I always end up at, it's just better just to buy the sats. However, I like you constantly want to be mining. I look at those space heaters, those like super expensive, can't afford space heaters that run Bitcoin miners to generate the heat. That to me, because I heat my house with electric heat and I use those oil space heaters. Oh man. Oh man. If I could be in a room and I'm getting warmed by a Bitcoin miner and I'm just sitting there like even just looking at it saying that thing is sitting there mining Bitcoin right now as it's generating heat. Just think about that. How cool would that be? Am I a nerd? Is it just me? You're both nerds. I think that if you want to play around with mining and figure out what that's like, joining a mining pool, setting that up, getting that experience, kind of understanding the incentives of mining firsthand, which is probably the only way to do it. I think that's a great idea. Just understand you're paying for the privilege. And if you want to have a chance at making a a profit or breaking even, you probably need to, you know, find a deal. And I think there are used minor telegram groups and marketplaces. And again, that's rolling the dice because you don't know what happened to this miner before they're selling it. Someone spilled coffee in it. What's going on? But that might be the way to go. The, I think the R4 is pretty old, right? So if you're going too old, you know, you're, you know, the reason it's a low price is because it's a worthless piece of electronic waste, frankly. But if you're going to spend the money, they're probably cheaper now than they will be if there is a bull market, right? Like those things go up in price really, really quick. So if you're going to do it, Maybe now is the time, I suppose. Now, we had uh, 12 boosters in total. It was kind of a it was kind of a light week for us. We won't be uh, living it up while we're down here in El Salvador. We got 52,101 sats over 12 boosts. So thank you, everybody, who does take a minute to boost in. We also get an automatic reoccurring boost from Bob, 3,000 sats. That's always appreciated, too. If you'd like to boost into the show, support and get your message on here, get a podcast app that supports boosting at newpodcastapps.com. You top it off with some sats or keep your damn podcast app. That's fine. I'll just judge you a little bit. I kid. Just get Albie. It's actually really great. Get Albie.com. You top that off and then you can boost us from like the podcast index or whatevs. We'll have links in the show notes for that. This is a value for value production and uh, we put a lot of work into each and every episode and we appreciate the value that comes back. If you got some value out of it, that's always part of the deal with value value. You get something out of it, you send a little value back. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on November 4th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I am here live in Bitcoin Beach, El Zante, El Salvador with me, a very warm and sweaty Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And keep those air conditioners running.